Happy New Year. New Year's is funny. Because we changed the date, January 1st, and then a new year. We somehow think it's a new beginning. In reality, Saturday became Sunday. But we're always wanting to have a renewal and a start over because we usually mess up so much. It's nice to know that we have another new beginning to start all over. And so what happens usually during this period of time is people make resolutions. I've done it in the past. You make resolutions like, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to have more um, time efficiency, and I'm going to, to do things where um, my, man my time management is better, and, and you have all of these things that you're going to do, and in each of you, you know, I'm going to uh, work harder at my job, or I'm going to get a promotion, and you have all these items that, that you plan to do, and usually around February 15th, 16th or so, you're not any thinner. Your time management is still terrible. Or your time management is great, and you're very efficient, but you're efficient and not doing anything consequential. And so my goal for you today and for me today is not to give you some resolutions. But I have a prayer for you and for me. It's a prayer for this New Year's, but I think it's a prayer that applies every day of the year so that if on February 15th we're not living up to the prayer we're requesting, we can pray again and again and again because it's not a resolution. Now, this prayer that, that I want for us is not original to me. It's what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. And it's found in, uh, first, um, in Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. And so he has this particular prayer in mind. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So his prayer is that I want you to be enlightened so that you will know. And then he's going to ask for three things. And so his prayer started off with is, I don't want you to be aware of something. I want you to be so enlightened in your heart and, and who you are that you know this. So to kind of give you an example, we can read that God loves us. We can say God loves us. We can even sing as a part of our song every Sunday last year, God really loves us. And you can say it and you can think it, but when it becomes real to you, when it becomes, as they say, gestalt, all of a sudden, aha, God really does love me. And it doesn't matter the circumstances and it doesn't matter my position. And it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks because God loves me. There's that knowledge. There's not just that thought. And so his prayer is that they might know, not suspect, not believe, but know. And he's going to have three things that he wants the church at Ephesus to know and something I want me to know and for you to know. And the first one is, what is the hope of his calling? 
What is the hope of his calling? Now, we are told that um, his calling relates to eternal life. says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So a part of his hope that, that he provides for us is that we have eternal life, that no matter what happens here on earth, no matter how successful or unsuccessful, how painful or whatever, or the fact is that at one point, either way too early in, in our estimation or a longer life, we're given eternal life. But there's more than that in his, in his hope. In, in um, Psalms 39.7, it says this, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. The hope isn't that things will change. The hope isn't that I'll turn over a new leaf. The hope isn't that I'll get strong enough. The hope is God himself. But there is more to this hope of his calling than just our eternal life or whatever. It is significant because he's called us. In essence, to, to kind of give it a, a more earthy idea to, to picture it, it's like God assembling a championship team. Says, I'm going to call out individuals for a championship team. Now, if you are, if you've ever been in a, in a public school or, or whatever where there's people choose up teams, they usually take the two best players and they make them captains because they don't want them to be on the same team. And then they have, they come up with some way to choose and then they choose a team. And the last thing you want is to be called last. Or you're so bad We'll give that person and you to the other team. You know, now, I have a very personal re reminder of this. this the, the actual very beginning of the second quarter of my seventh grade year, we moved from East LA to Westminster. And I went to Johnson Junior High School. And we were there and we were playing during... Uh, lunchtime baseball. And they chose teams and nobody knew me. So you know, I got to last and I got put in the, in the least uh, problem area out in right field. Because that's where you put no good players. And so I'm, and, and I, I remember this, I can, I can still relive it. I was out in right field and a ball was hit up to me. And I said this prayer with as much meaning as I've ever said any prayer in my life. God help me catch the ball. Because I knew that if I didn't catch the ball, I would be relegated for the rest of my life there in Johnson as a dweeb. No one would ever want me to be on their team. Now, I didn't know about theology or whether God cared about baseball or whether he cared about this particular game or even me catching the ball. I caught the ball. At least, I don't know whether he answered my prayer or at least didn't work against me. But 
because I understood what the consequence was of that situation. And the next inning, I was put in third base. Because I didn't want to be that guy who was picked last. But when God assembles a team, you start looking around at the people he calls, you wouldn't pick them and you wouldn't pick you. But you're not championship material. It's like saying, okay, our church is going to play the Super Bowl winners this year. I don't know if we could survive the first play. But that's, God has called us to be on his championship team. And when he calls us, let's face it, what are you doing? He says, Joe, I picked you. And I look and I go. But God, I can't play. I, even, at the, even when I was young and at the best, I could never play against the Super Bowl winning team. And God will look at me and say, yeah. Remember this really old couple who were barren? And I told them they'd have a child and they laughed. Not only did they have a child, they had so many children that nations came from them. And there was this other guy who was so afraid that he winnowed his wheat in a wine vat. And I took a few soldiers and defeated an army. Then there was this other guy who I called to lead my people out of slavery. He was a deliverer and a lawgiver. And he said he couldn't speak. And then I called a virgin to say, you're going to carry the Messiah. He's going, but I've never known him. And the answer was, nothing is impossible. We need to stop getting off of what we can do and start taking a look at what God can do. The problem is, and why I am not a big fan of the purpose-driven life is because usually the purpose-driven life is, what can I do significant? As opposed to saying, God, you call me, and you do significant things, and I'll just be there watching you because you're the one doing it. The hope of his calling is that when God does something, it has significance and it has eternal purpose, as opposed to everybody might think I'm a wonderful whatever. The hope of his calling. His calling is such that not only do we have eternal life, not only is our hope in him, but our hope is the fact that he will do something with us. Amen. He has a second request, also found in Ephesians. He says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That second thing, that you might really know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, there are two ways to look at this verse, and usually we 
tend to look at the most personal to us. And that we find, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So God is not only building us a dwelling place that we might dwell with him, and that he has going to present us with golden crowns, the crowns of life, those types of things. And that he has called us to that place that is imperishable, that it won't fade away, that won't. That is such a place. Well, let me ask you this question. And, and this isn't a, a, a question. I want you to actually raise your hand. If you're wearing, and I want you to listen to the entire question first before you raise your hand. If you're wearing either earrings or a necklace or a ring or a bracelet or a piercing that's made of concrete or asphalt, raise your hand. No one. Why? Because it doesn't have much value, right? Where we're going, the streets are of pure gold. That's how much value gold has, that it's street material. We don't wear street material because the beauty and the non-fading away of heaven is not the gold. It's being in the presence of God. But there's also a sense of this value of the inheritance. But notice it says, of his inheritance in the saints. You are his inheritance. God values you. He has determined that we are going to inherit a place that the streets are of gold and a, and a dwelling place that we are in and it will never fade away and it will never dwell. But he also says, you're mine. And if we get that, we're his. The third thing that he asked for. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? The surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's not his power towards the world, but it's toward us who believe. These are in accordance, all three are in accordance with the strength of his might. Now, Paul also says, talking about strength, he says this in, in uh, 2 
Corinthians chapter. And he said to me, this is after Paul prayed three times that God would take away a problem in his life. We don't know what it is. Some people say it's eyesight, but some people say it's different things. We don't know. And I think it's good that we don't know because we say, oh, that was about eyesight. God doesn't understand my problem. No, no, he understands your limitations. So he doesn't give us an exact because it applies to everyone. He says, so, and, and I love it. After I prayed three times, Paul had must have had such a great prayer life that I asked God for something once and I go, praise, you know, this, we, in, our, in our prayer meeting, we have a things that we pray for and we have praises and we're supposed to tell people if uh, there's been an answer to prayer or whatever. So if Paul was in our, uh, in our prayer uh, meeting, the first week we would say, I'm praying for such and such. The next week, such and such happened. Now I'm praying for this. Because apparently he goes, I prayed three times and it hasn't happened. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, so often we think about grace is that unmerited favor for salvation. But it's also unmerited, unmerited favor for life itself and all that happens. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in you. That's why God is calling us to his championship team. Because in a purpose-driven life, we want to be the hero of the story. The team that God is calling together, when we win, and we win, no matter what the opposition is, it's not, oh, well, they had an excellent quarterback or whatever. No, no. God was awesome, and they were there. The power is perfected me. More most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Maybe why we don't have power in our lives, maybe why we don't have power in our church, and maybe why the Christian church in overall doesn't have power is because they're so worried about being strong rather than letting God be strong. Allowing us to be weak allowing us to not necessarily have all the answers and say, I will let Christ dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. All these things happen because I'm a believer, for when I am weak, then I am. And if we understand all of those, the hope of his calling, the value of his inheritance, and the power that he has given us, it comes down to this. which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Jesus' death was not just an event. It was a historical fact. 
and he is who he said he is, and he's risen. But all of these things that we have, we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's prayer. To understand that you know that hope. That you know that riches. That you know that power in his strength. So that we might live according to his calling. According to his purpose. According to his Lord. And it starts at the cross. You notice it said that I want those who you who believe to see these. Not asking for the world to see. Because maybe if we see these, and maybe if we live these things, and maybe if we actually acted as if he was risen from the dead. Maybe the world might pay attention. But even if it doesn't, that's still our obligation. So, my request of me and of you is not that you make resolutions to be a better person. And I hope you do. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have any problem with that. But I hope, in addition to those resolutions, you pray that God would work in your life in a way only he can. And that we would have in that victory. And as I said, a lot of times we go, well, God, I'm not really meant to be on a championship team. He reminds you, it's not about you, it's about him. And he reminds you of all the saints who have gone before that have accomplished awesome things not because they were great men and women, but because we have a great God. A great God who laid it out on the cross so that we might be on a winning team. And all God's people said,